You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the MLHS Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. We're four games into the Leafs-Hab series. Leafs have just taken a 3-1 series lead after a dominant Game 4 performance. Everyone in Toronto is feeling great right now. The series odds at Toronto finishing up the series, 96% per Dom's model, 97% on Money Puck. It's a good time to be a Leafs fan. How you feeling? I made a I made a big mistake going into the playoffs. I I meant to shave before game one, and then I didn't have time. The day got away from me, so I couldn't. And now I'm like, you have to grow a playoff beard, right? Like that's the move. I know you can't grow facial hair, but I've got the Kale McCarr playoff beard. I basically grow like a neard. I call it like a neck beard, which is just awful. But now you can't shave you can't they're in a run you can't shave i mean it would literally be my fault i did this when the raptors had Kawhi. i grew the most disgusting ginger beard that i've ever grown in my life and it wasn't good it wasn't full it wasn't manly like most nhl players it was just kind of fluffy and not consistent and i'm kind of glad that when i started off right now it's going to take a, a solid month before i even start to see any of the ginger stuff on my on my cheeks here so i'm happy just actually talking about hockey and not my disgusting facial hair <laughs> well i mean they're up in the series so to answer your actual question about the leafs i mean yeah i feel good about them uh it's unfortunate that Tavares is out in the sense that you would like to be clicking on all cylinders. I don't want to take it for granted and have some sort of podcast here where we talk about this series like it's a foregone conclusion. So they're, you know, they still have to show that they can wrap it up. Yeah, this is the Jets playoff preview right now. Yeah, we're not going to do that just yet. We're, we're not going to get there just yet. And at the same time, too, the Felino injury has been unfortunate on all kinds of levels. And it kind of makes sense because I, I remember watching game one and I was particular, I, he, he had an ice time that was upsetting to me. Just, you kind of look at it and go, he played 13 minutes and change or something. And I actually thought he was really good in game one. And why is he playing so little? But, you know, as it kind of goes to show, we don't always know the full story. Obviously he's playing through something. They're trying to limit his minutes. It's just, you know, playoffs is in part about being healthy. Yep, and with Brendan Gallagher, there was something similar. There was a game where he had 13 minutes. You're asking yourself, how can you play your best 5-on-5 players so few minutes? But the hand is clearly bothering him. I'm not sure if that wrist is recovered. He took another puck in the hand, which probably just makes it worse. So that's unfortunate for Montreal, but this is a Leafs podcast. I wanted to take this opportunity to break down some of the specific aspects of the series that really interest me and part of the reason Toronto's taking such a, a big lead overall. And to me, I think it's the cycle defense from Toronto that's really impressed me. Mike Kelly put out a tweet before Game 4 breaking down just how dominant the cycle chances were. I want to say it was 37-11 at that point yeah. in Toronto's favor. Rush chances are about even, with Montreal even having a slight lead in that department, which is something we could touch on, especially considering the Winnipeg Jets have Nick Ehlers, who generates all of his chances off the rush. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But one of the biggest things that Toronto's improved this year is their ability to defend as a five-man unit. I know if you look at stats from some of the proprietary uh, models like ClearSight Analytics... Anyone from there, whether it's Stephen Valakat or Kevin Woodley, if you hear them on radio hits, they'll be breaking down how Toronto's ability to limit shot quality 
is among the truly elite in the NHL this year. The amount of quality chances that they give up, especially off the cycle, extremely low. They do a really good job at taking away those passing lanes through the middle of the ice. And surprisingly, they don't spend a lot of time in their own end. I know last year when Keith first came in, I was a bit worried that the team seemed to be adopting that Barry Trot style, which in theory sounds good, but if you're getting cycled on around the perimeter for long stretches, bad things can happen in a game with a lot of bounces. But Toronto's ability to take away those high danger areas and then quickly attack puck carriers in vulnerable, I can't talk right now, in vulnerable positions and force turnovers and get the puck the other way. It's, it's mind boggling to me because this is a team who hasn't been able to defend, to defend for the last decade at five on five. And now they have one of the best cycle defenses in the NHL. And it's a big part of the reason they're dominating Montreal at five on five. Yeah. I tried to note it after the last game, their defense in general has been fairly solid, if unspectacular, but solid. And by if unspectacular... I mean, that's what defense is, right? Yeah. And and by that, I don't mean it as a, as a criticism. I just mean, you know, they're not... There's nothing fancy, per se, about what they're doing. We're not watching guys, you know, 360 players in their own zone and go around. We're not, you know, watching Eric Carlson blackout from a few years ago when Ottawa went to the conference finals. We're just watching them actually play good defense and I was thinking about this in the context of Riley who I think's had a good series and that's noteworthy your boy over there Morgan Riley he's he's had a few moments where he's actually defended the rush really well in the first couple games there were one-on-one rushes against Suzuki or Caulfield where he just stripped them of the puck there were some other moments where he didn't gap up and those were a bit frustrating the Nick Suzuki goal yeah but the offensive brilliance from him and roaming around in the offensive zone that's what he does best and that's when he's at his best so I think that this series really plays into his hand and style of play because when we look at what the Habs are doing, and I think everyone's kind of just, I, I just listening to some of the commentary on the team and and you know you, you know things coming together, the depth and blah 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 that that's kind of being spewed. Like you have to take it in the context of who they're playing, right? And and what's going on on the other side. And when I look at Riley. This is an ideal situation for him because the Habs are obviously trying to trap things up and they're trying to slow the game down and they're trying to make life difficult through the neutral zone. And that's perfect for a D-man like Morgan Riley because he's all skating, he's all puck carrying. It caters to a defenseman bringing the puck up the ice. And at the same time, he gets to do that against forwards who are not particularly dangerous the other way. It's not... He's not being asked to defend and you know against elite a talent. He's basically just being asked, can you help break this trap and facilitate our top end players, which is really where he's at his best. Where things get a little bit more dicey is when you say, okay, can you play 25, 27 minutes a night in a playoff series and go head to head against you know the Patrice Bergerons, the Braden Points, the et cetera's of the world, and you know, facilitate that offense and also not be a liability on defense. But that's not the situation against the Habs here. And his life's definitely made easier by TJ Brody, who's just been such a great compliment. At whenever Riley's a bit up in the play, TJ Brody compensates defensively and gets himself to the right spots. Part of TJ Brody's uh, defensive results and Jake Muzzin's defensive results at 5-5 five and five this year, I look at those and I go, okay, they've been the team's two best defensive players. Zach Bogosian's been a steady presence on the third pair, really settling things down in the D zone, taking away any of the high-value plays through the middle of the ice by the net. I'm wondering, when we're looking at Toronto's team defense as a whole, 
how much of it is personnel and how much of it would you say is coaching and structure? Because I think the acquisition to TJ Brody obviously makes a huge difference to your defense if you're playing a guy 22-plus minutes a night who provides surplus value on the defensive end. But I think there's also a, a team buy-in, not just from the defensemen, but from the forwards, particularly in the offensive zone where the F3s are always staying above their man, making sure they don't get beat the other way. There's, it's, it's hard to break down, right? Because at, at some point, the players are the ones who are going to impact the outcome of the game. And if you don't have the horses, you're not going to drive results. Just ask Connor McDavid's teammates. But th there's definitely some team effects going on here in that the system is doing a good job overall, but it certainly helps to have some players who are defensively responsible, which the Leafs haven't exactly had in years past. I think, honestly, I think the biggest part of it for the Leafs is just the natural like maturation of the team, right? Especially the young guys. You kind of been saying it all year. You eventually hit a point where, where you just go, this is embarrassing. We're not winning in the playoffs when, when things mattered. You brought up the cycle opportunities I mean, that's playoff hockey. That's quite literally what playoff hockey is. We know that. We know that rush chances dry up. We know that teams aren't sloppy in the neutral zone. It's not the beginning of the season and guys have their jerseys flapping behind them, just flying through the neutral zone untouched and playing against, you know, 18-year-olds that are getting their seven games in or whatever before, you know, the team has to make a decision on their contract. You know, this is the playoffs. This is teams in playoff mode. This is veterans, you know, guys that are going to make life difficult for you we know that extra uh infractions are not going to get called so that's another layer of things you have to fight through so you have to be able to create on those things but on the defensive side i think there's a lot more buy-in from the young guys and in part i think that's related to coaching but in part i think there's also just you know you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again year after year losing the same way eventually you guys have to sit there and go okay we play a part in this there are things that we have to clean up I think that's happening by and large. I mean, you know, a guy like Zach Hyman always kind of brought that, but we're seeing a, a little bit more dedication on that end of things. I mean, Matthews only has one goal in the series. It's not, he hasn't, you know, I know the shot totals and the chances and it's going to come. I'm not delusional by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not freaking out because he has one goal or anything like that. He's just going about his game. Laughing at Ben Sherrod after whistles. Yeah, right. But even, even then, right, we saw game game four the Leafs came out I thought they were great to start that game they came out and they were buzzing that they, they had the breakaway uh they had you know the two-on-one that drew the penalty they had a number of chances on that power play like they were humming and they couldn't score but they didn't freak out you know there wasn't sometimes what happens when you don't score early on is you start cheating you kind of get a little antsy and and now they're just sticking with the games a little bit better a little bit better of an understanding of the roles and and whatnot and to be honest i mean this really is dipping your toe in the shallow end playing this version of the habs i mean gallagher can't play they're you know and everything kind of stems from their shutdown line like they look terrible they honestly do i mean they played well in game four they dominated matthews and riley territorially they spent most of the time in the offensive zone with the puck but the rest of their lineup was just trash i mean i i, I told you going into the series i Honestly, Eric Stahl looks like me at work on a Friday before a long weekend. Like, I cannot even fathom the level that this guy's mailed it in. His 5-on-5 five five numbers since joining the team, it was close to, what, 40% in shots, chances, expected goals. It was brutal. He was getting destroyed at 5-on-5. Five five. He, he yeah. looks awful. Uh, and it's just, you, like, you go down the lineup. 
Remember how they had him in the lineup to start the series and Cole Caulfield in the press box? Remember when they did that? I could at least understand Caulfield. I, you were you did note going into it that he was trending in the right direction five on five, and obviously he's about the only dangerous guy. But like, like does Ducharme have any handle on his roster? I mean, you're. I don't get it. If you're gonna play Gallagher, then you play him. But like, there's no point of dressing the guy to play him 12 minutes in limited action because he's playing hurt. I mean, either he's in and you ride him because you don't have much else. Or you don't play him, and you play guys who can at least give you 100%. Yeah, his superpower is alongside Deneau on that checking line against the other team's top players, making life annoying for the opposition. And I noted this in my last uh, post-game report. If you look at that line's results this season, they were north of 70% expected goals this year. That's never happened in the last 14 years of recording that stat. So they're doing something special when they're on the ice together. If you're playing Gallagher without those guys, I don't know what you're doing. Frankly, I think Ducharme's done a terrible job since taking over for Claude awesome. Julien. The team's results at 5-5 five five have fallen off of a cliff. They're not controlling playing the neutral zone as well, they, as well as they used to. And if you look at the style of play that they're going for, they got rid of Victor Mete. They're not playing Alex Romanov in this series in favor of some of these bigger, tougher guys. They want it to be a, a war. They want Ben Chirot to be cross-checking you after the whistle. and. Sure. I'm sorry, but I think advancing the puck up the ice with possession and making skilled plays is how you win a lot of hockey games. And the only players who can do that in Montreal right now that I can see with, with regularity are Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield, some of your younger, more dynamic talents. So I, if I'm a Habs fan right now, I'm just infuriated, and I'm hoping that you see change in the front office at some point this offseason. I don't think it will. I don't think that's particularly likely. But I just think the Habs have done such a terrible job from the moment they decided to fire Claude Julien because I think, A, that was a terrible mistake. They led the league in 5-on-5 five five goal differential when that happened. They couldn't fire their goaltender, who's making $10.5 million for the next however many years. So they decided to fire their coach. But I think it just speaks to not recognizing what the actual problem is. And they thought Julian was the problem. He wasn't. They thought Mete was the problem, that Alex Romanov was the problem. That's the opposite of the problem here in Montreal. If anything, you need more players like that to help counteract some of the lack of speed and lack of puck moving and dynamic skill that you have. It's frustrating if you're a Habs fan. I can't imagine how infuriated you must be watching some of these games. On the on the positive end, if you're the Leafs, and we, and we talked about, or you mentioned the Matthews line and, and kind of getting hedged a little bit by the Deneau line in the last game, it it really hasn't mattered. I mean, Nylander has a goal a game. He looks fantastic. I mean, he's just flying. I mean, he... Playoff Nylander. The, the wild thing to me about it is... And and you see it with guys, right? We see it with Nick Felino. He's out right now. He's battling something. You, you see it, you know, Brandon Gallagher's battling something. Does not look like himself. I mean, a lot of guys are in that territory because they've just played a long season and now it's playoffs and, you, and you're battling through things. I'm sure Zach Hyman isn't 100%. Right, yeah, there's another good one. And I'm sure no one truly is. But Nylander and Kerfoot are flying. Like, these guys look like they just had a long summer break and they came back and they're fresh. And I don't mean that in any sort of negative way. I don't want any sort of negative connotation, meaning that, like, something happened for them to feel that way. I'm just saying, like, these guys look good to go. Like, they are all over the ice. Their speed has been just a nightmare for the Habs to deal with. You brought up the fact that rush chances dissipate in the postseason, but that's a line that's been able to consistently generate transition offense. They've been able to outskate their man, starting the defensive end, beating him up the ice into the neutral zone. And then you have a three on two or a four on three or a four on two sometimes if you have a Morgan Riley joining you in the rush. And Alex Galchenyuk playing alongside them obviously had a huge game four. What's interesting about him is that in game two and game three, he had zero shot attempts. 
He wasn't generating much of offense, but sometimes you'd see him grab the puck in the neutral zone and make a little fancy pass to Nylander, a little fancy pass to Kerfoot. And that's the high-end skill that obviously got him drafted third overall, but the, the defensive concerns are what resulted in him playing in however many... This is his seventh stop in the NHL. He's been around the league. For a reason, for a good reason. Yeah, no, fairly. But one thing Sheldon Keefe noted about him, and he says it every time after the game, is that his motor never stops. He's always going 110% into every puck battle as F1. He's skating back hard as the F3 defensively. Galchenyuk's never going to be someone who reads the game well defensively in real time compared to a Nick Foligno, compared to a Zach Hyman, compared to even an average defensive player at the NHL level. There are going to be lapses where he loses his man and there's an odd man rush the other way and you're going, oh crap, Galchenyuk, you should have seen that, you didn't see it, and now we're down a goal. But he provides a bit of an element in that top six without Tavares now because the Leafs don't have that high-end talent that they used to have on that second line. I think Galchenyuk's ability to help continue passing sequences up the ice and get the puck onto the stick of a Nylander or a Kerfoot in open ice, that's going to help you create transition opportunities. And we've seen it with Kerfoot. His speed, his passing, all of a sudden this has value if he's passing the puck to a Nylander. I think when you play him in the third line with checking players, it doesn't maximize his skill set. Because what does Kerfoot do best? It's that shifty little skating, shaking a guy in the D zone, using his speed to burst through the neutral zone. And you know he's not going to shoot it. He's going to look for a pass. So you need to pass it to someone who has some skill. If he's passing it to Mikheyev, if he's passing it to Engvall, if he's passing it to a Wayne Simmons, it's not going to do that much. But if he's passing it to a Nylander in open ice, all of a sudden there are some opportunities that the team can create offensively. Yeah, and to be honest, I mean, that was kind of a miss or must on the last one when we were saying, okay, who might be a guy that steps up in the playoffs? I mean, Kerfoot's been the guy, and I've definitely given him a hard time at times, which I think partly has been fair, partly probably due to the cadre shade and everything around that. I've been arguing for him to come out of the lineup because his advanced numbers at 5-on-5 five five were brutal this season. The funny thing is I thought he actually looked really good on the third line, which he hasn't traditionally this season anyway. Yeah, it was only Tavares and Nylander where he had good results this year. But but he was legitimately good in, in Game 2 alongside Engvall and Mikheyev. I hope this ends the scratching Engvall thing. I, he's clearly in their top 12 forwards, no matter what way you're going to play. I mean, honestly, even looking at it, when I go back to Game 1, I think it was a poor, and you could argue that if Tavares doesn't get hurt, things would have, you know, just completely different game. The Leafs would have been fine, yada, yada, yada. And I could take that argument for sure. But... I just think it was a poor read the way that they configured the lineup in game one in that sense of you just dedicated a whole third line to defense against this Montreal team where really you just have to uh, you score a couple goals. I mean, they just seem completely out of their depth. The In game three, the Habs made a, they made a legitimate push in the third, I thought. The Leafs turtled. It was bad. I think scoring chances were eight to one in that period. It wasn't close. But game four was, was a, you know, that was an Eric Stahl mail it in in the third from them. Why is he still playing? They have better I, players in the press box. I just, on principle alone, he shouldn't play, but he'll probably score after I say this or something. I could honestly care less. He's going to have a hat trick in the next game now that we've said this. Just could honestly care less. I I know mailing it in when I see it, and Eric Stahl is so far mailing it in. At, but they had nothing, I thought, the Habs in the third. And, you know, the Leafs played it better for sure. They cycle, but when you're down 3 nothing and and... You don't put in a huge push. You know, either the other team had dominated you, which the Leafs didn't do, or you guys just, like, you had nothing in the tank. You had no, there there was surprisingly little fight from them in the third, I thought. 
Do you mind if I pivot here and talk about Pierre Engvall? Because you mentioned yeah. him, and he's someone who I've always found fascinating. I remember talking to a scout early in the year, and I, I'm always trying to improve my ability to analyze the game of hockey just because it's something I'm literally paid to do. So I figure, okay, maybe I should get better at this. Maybe this is a skill I should try to develop here. Plus, you need to get better at it. Yeah, I'm terrible at it, clearly. <laughs> I think Kerfoot sucks, and here he is dominating in the playoffs. What do I know? So... <laughs> Uh, I, I was mentioning how being paid to try to take notes on Pierre Engvall after every game is just the most fascinating experience because he's someone who you watch him and he has all these tools. He's six foot five. His stick looks way longer than that. He can skate. I know he's all neck, but that height still matters. His legs are crazy long. He, when he grabs the puck in the defensive zone, all of a sudden he'll just beat his man clean up the ice and have an odd man rush. And then in the offensive zone, it looks like he's thinking five steps behind everyone else on the ice. So it's this bizarre set of characteristics in a hockey player that I've never really been sure how to evaluate. I'm not sure what he is as a player. Is he a guy who has some kind of top nine offensive game, a guy who on the Marley's power play had a heavy shot that they were able to take advantage of? Or is he someone whose brain will just never catch up with his feet and you get frustrated with him and you need to play him in a more defensive role? I know Keith has wanted him to use his size more often, use his physicality more often, to win puck battles, to put pressure on opposing players, to get a body on the opposition, whether it's in the defensive zone, in the corners, along the boards. And my favorite shift of his, not just in this series, but maybe in his entire life, is when he went in on the forecheck, got a body on the first man, then went over and cleanly hit Shea Weber, knocked him on his ass, it pissed off Shea Weber, and then Shea Weber went and cross-checked him without the puck and drew a penalty. That's what you want to see from Pierre Engvall, and I think... Put it, playing him alongside Mikheyev is the best use of his skill set. Throughout the year, I've tried to group those two together in the report cards, and now in the post-game analysis, I try to always group them together because they're so similar. They both have really long sticks. They're really disruptive when they're pressuring puck carriers, when they're in the neutral zone, in a neutral zone trap. If you ever watch them kill penalties, Mikheyev's so good at reading the drop pass. Engvall, it's very similar just because they're long, they're athletic, they're disruptive. That's what you want in an effective defender, whether we're talking about basketball, hockey, football. If you're long, you're athletic, and you're on top of your op opponent, they don't have anywhere to go. The offensive upside I don't think is ever going to be there for him, but... I like him on that third line with Mikheyev, whether it's with the Simmons, whether it's with the Kerfoot. Even when Riley Nash is there, if it's there to be a shutdown line, I like those combination of players in Toronto's third line. I'm all for being tough on guys, and I know I've said this a number of times. I just I think that Keith is unnecessarily hard on him. Seen Bourne's theory about it? No, what is it? So he calls it the cocoon, is that when he goes into the press box, he he goes into his cocoon and then he emerges as a butterfly is that you have to be really hard on him. You have to kind of put him in his place. And then after receiving that negative criticism, he bounces back with the best version of himself. And uh, he, he was joking in his latest uh, article, Board, is he said that, okay, well, maybe uh, Engvall's going to have another couple great games here. And then Keith's going to have to give him a kick in the ass, whether it's in the media or whether it's behind closed doors or whether it's with sitting one game in the press box. And then he'll come back and he'll score two goals and deliver five huge hits and be an excellent penalty killer. I don't know. I don't know how to maximize these guys' talents. I don't know them personally, but it's always fascinated me how frustrated Keith gets with him because sometimes I find myself being equally frustrated knowing what he could be with his tools, but then sometimes you see the results on the ice and they're not what they should be. So I do agree that he responds well to criticism of that. I have no doubt or getting sat. I, he doesn't suck out. He comes back and he's played well consistently. I don't think that he was playing like shit before they scratched and start the playoffs. He was actually playing well. 
some of his best hockey of the year, especially offensively. He was yeah. not just scoring goals, but Creating. taking good shots. Yeah, for once, he wasn't firing pucks from the boards. He was actually getting to the high slot areas. So to me, the scratch wasn't even a slap on a wrist. It was just like, you know, he's not playing well. We need to kind of, you know, crack the whip a little bit and get him going at the expense of game one. I think it was just quite literally a decision that they made that I think was poor, even in its process, considering the opponent. Now, the other thing I'll say, here's my theory on it with, with Keefe and Engvall. I think Engvall is an easy guy for Keefe to criticize and I think there's a lot of guys on the team that are not easy I mean you're just you're not you're not doing publicly what he how he calls him out you're not you're not doing that publicly to Jason Spezza or Wayne Simmons or Joe Thornton doing that to Matthews or Marner they haven't done that really ever and who does that leave like Mikheyev I mean dear lord I mean the the guy just works the guy just works I mean you're not going to call him out what are you going to call him out for he just he skates up and down the wing every night. He's the fastest guy in the game. He can't score. What are you going to say to him? I mean, there's nothing to say. So I know I know when Dave Cameron used to coach Ottawa. And this was this was prime Eric Carlson's a weapon on for both teams. You know, I mean, it could be it could be sick. He could be throwing up a three-point night for you and carrying you to a win or he could be throwing up a dash three night and your whole team's just going, "Okay." I you know, it was it was that kind of timeline for eric carlson who i think is an incredible player to be clear just we'll go with it and i remember i and i know this i you know i was i was wondering you know does dave cameron just lose it on this guy i mean it's just you know it's complete jekyll and hyde you don't know what you're getting from him and and the answer was no he would go down and he would lose it on a guy like eric griba like just pure whipping boy well it's funny is morgan riley kind of meets that description too doesn't he uh, to a lesser extent on both sides, I would say. Not as elite offensively, not as brutal defensively in certain aspects. Okay. Yeah, I, I. So the Suzuki goal to me, I, I thought that was that was. A, I mean, I didn't think it's just a fact. It was a really bad gap by Riley. He was basically chilling inside the blue line when Suzuki got the puck. I mean, it's just it's not going to work against good players. And Suzuki's a good player. And those are the clips I've tried to pull out throughout yeah. the season where I go, okay, this is a flaw. This is something where it really matters and these are chances against and I'd like to see that tighter. And I've been saying that for years and I think at some point you might just be who you yeah. are as a player at age 28 and you have to accept him for what he is offensively and defensively. So to, to speak to your comparison though, I think it, Eric Carlson would do stuff where, where it'd be, you know, I'm going to try to toe drag this guy here. And I get stopped or I get pickpocketed or things of that nature. But we don't really watch Riley. It's very rare that, you know, we're watching and Riley's trying to go end to end or rip some sort of rush. And then he just gets completely burned. I think he gets burned off his gap control, off the rush. I think at times he makes the, you know, and this is every defenseman in fairness. I think he'll make the wrong read on whether to step up or not because he doesn't have support. And then it's an, it's a two on one the other way. We've seen that before. And again, like every defenseman's guilty of that. It's, just, it's not even possible to play the position as long as much as he does on a nightly basis and not make that up. But Eric Carlson, it would literally be he gets the puck and he's going to try to be a hero sometimes, and and he gets burned. Riley doesn't do that stuff. To be fair, when you're playing on Ottawa, so I think I think he had to do a lot of that. Yeah, and that's what he would say, right? Like who else was going to score? And um, I was sick and throwing up 70, 80 point seasons or whatever. So you know that would be his justification, but. 
like I said, like we like we started this, like, there comes a point where everybody's got to got to sit there and go, okay, well, do we want to advance in the playoffs? I thought he was much better at it the year that they went to the conference finals. I thought Carlson was literally the best player in the world that playoff run. I mean, he was amazing. Mark Stone, pretty sick too. That was, that was a sick playoffs in general. If you're an Ottawa Senators fan, you're just thinking, man, we had Mike Hoffman, Mark Stone, Eric Carlson. We had yeah. good players. What happened? So that so that's my theory on Engvall. I think he's just an easy whipping boy target. Because you're just you're not going to touch any of the top four defensemen publicly to the you know you're not you're not going to call those guys out you're not going to call out pretty much anyone in the top six you know we saw him we saw him immediately leak one out on Felino when he was acquired but I I don't think that would be the norm on on a vet like that so then you kind of look at the roster and it it makes sense to play Pierre Engvall against a team like the Habs. They can't score. That was kind of what we said going into it, right? We were like, let's get a scoring third line because the Habs can't score. Yeah, it didn't make sense to have Riley Nash there. It's not like they had a McDavid. It's not like they had a McKinnon, someone you're going to be hard matching. It's not like they had a Taylor Hall, a dangerous offensive player who creates chances off the rush. So this sounds this is going to sound like the stupidest thing ever, so I hope I articulate it right, and I could easily get radioed on this quote without question. Looking forward to it. So obviously that you know whoever scores more wins, right? And that's why it makes total sense Hold to on, play. Hold on, let me write that team. down. Yeah. Did you get that for your game analysis? So whoever scores more wins. And against a team like the Habs, it's literally just a race to goals. And I know every game is technically a race to goals, but a team like the Habs just they can't keep up, not in their current iteration anyway. But when you play other teams that are deeper and better and have more top end talent, you will need Riley Nash. Like I think Riley Nash is going to be notable at some point in these playoffs. Maybe even in the Jets series, because they have a few offensive guys who can hurt you. Absolutely, and you're eventually you're going to play some team where you just look at a, a bottom one of your two bottom lines. You say like your job is literally just don't get scored on. Like that's it. Play in the offensive zone. Play keep away for forty seconds. And even if you score zero goals in this series, if you can keep them to scoring maybe one against you this entire time, that's going to help us a lot. Even if you're not in the offensive zone, just literally don't get scored on. Like, that's it. That's all we're asking for you, right? As best as you could possibly do it. And that's it. So that's that's a line that's not, it's not a race to goals. It's just like, don't get scored on. Can I say something about Riley Nash? I've seen a lot of criticism about him. He's done everything as advertised throughout his career. He prevents scoring chances against. He prevents scoring chances for. I know if you look at the few games he played, I want to say his first game, he was on the ice for one scoring chance for, one scoring chance again. In the other game he played, he was on the ice for one scoring chance for, two scoring chances against. He slowed the game down. He plays above his man. He doesn't allow odd man rushes. And he provides absolutely no value offensively. We've all known this. That's what he's been throughout his entire career over the last five to ten years. I think Leafs fans just didn't expect that to be what it looked like when they actually saw it. Maybe when you're on the other side of the equation and you're cheering for an Austin Matthews or a John Tavares and they're not able to actually create dynamic offense against him, it's really frustrating. But if you actually watch good defense, it doesn't look like anything. It just looks like really boring hockey. And I think that's what Riley Nash does well. I don't think you really need it against the Montreal Canadiens, but I think he's done his job to at least what he's been... Uh, if you look at a heat map, for example... No yeah, shots against, no chances do. from the high slot, and then offensively, no shots, no chances from the high slot. The The game just ends for 40 seconds. That's what he's done in the two games he's played, and I get why it's a bit frustrating when you want a little bit more offense, but that's what he does. It's what he's always done, and I think he's been doing it. I 
I just think he looks a step slow. I think to the hat against the Habs, he's been fine. I think he looks just a little bit slow, which is, I mean, he looks like a guy that's been off for a few months and is walking into the playoffs. And not everybody's Nikita Kucherov. Not everybody's Peter Forsberg in 2001. I mean, for most mortals. Kale McCarr, his first playoff series. Yeah. But at least Kale McCarr was playing with, you know, college hockey and then just kept the train rolling. Yeah, he was dominating at UMass for a couple months. Yeah. Other than these absolute, some of these studs, right? They just set the bar. People watch Kucherov. So, oh yeah, I missed the whole season. Just walk in and, and look unreal. But he's the exception to the rule. Most guys look like like Riley Nash. So he's just a little bit slow. Well, what did Patrick Kane look like when he did the same thing? When was that? Uh, he, he, it, this was a few years back. Patrick Kane was basically the Kucherov. A oh, few years yeah. Back where he yeah. had a quote-unquote injury that helped Chicago get some extra cap space. Yeah, I mean, these guys are superstars for a reason. I mean, r- regular rules don't apply. I mean, hell, if you're in the NHL in general, regular rules don't apply. But then there's, you're, like, Kucherov and Kane and Forsberg, these guys are the 1% of the 1%. I mean, it's it's like next level. Hall of Famers, basically. Right? Like, you can't compare. Riley Nash looks like a guy that's been off, and it's unfortunate. But what I am glad um, that happened, and I think that this is a notable development, and it's interesting doing this podcast now because we're trying to walk that fine line of this series isn't over, but, you know, let's not recap each game individually because that's kind of a waste of time at this point. But what I have liked that they did is they got Brooks into a game. They got Dermot into a game. They got, you know, they got, everybody's been in the game now. There's nobody sitting unless you are... Sorry, is my phone rang there. What a popular guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. That never happens. Um, but unless you are Martin Marinson. You didn't, like, everybody else has played, and that's what you want, other than Frederick Anderson, too. And I know the Dermot one bothered a lot of people. I was joking with some friends that, like, oh, I wanted them to keep Rasmus Sandin in, and they were all making fun of me. They're saying, Ian Tulloch is suggesting the Leafs bench Travis Dermot? What's going on here? But I can understand the idea of wanting to get him in, because at some point you might need him. He's one of your best rush defenders. I know that there's a lot he doesn't do, especially offensively, but the Habs are... I don't want to say destroying you off the rush, but the Habs' only way of creating efficient offense in this series has been by way of off-the-rush chances. So why not get Dermot in there to help limit some of those opportunities? I I totally understood it. I think long-term, Sandin provides you with the most upside, but I hear what you're saying. Get Nash in for a game. Get Engvall in. Get all these guys that you might need at some point. Get them in. There are going to be injuries. You're probably going to have one major injury per round. You had the Tavares one in round two. Who's it going to be in in round two? We don't know yet, but you're probably going to need 15 forwards, maybe 16. You're probably going to need eight defensemen. The other thing, too, is, and on that note, so those guys should start feeling good. You know, Brooks, I I felt bad for him on the penalty. It was a a shit call. Let's not even get into it, because officiating, I mean, Dom Lucision wrote an amazing article about officiating. I just suggest go read that, and maybe when we're breaking down the Jets, that'll be something we bring up, because McDavid got clowned in that series zero penalties drawn by the best player in the world in back-to-back playoff series now what are you doing nhl so some of those things i will i don't want to get into a full ref thing but i will say that some of those things i do agree with and i watched that entire triple overtime and i was annoyed because Connor mcdavid was wearing a backpack pretty much the entire time it looks like those highlights from the 90s where guys are water skiing on mario lemieux yeah and it was garbage and and to that degree absolutely like you need to call those things but I, I still think it's just dis, it's completely disingenuous to just say, call the rule book. I think that is such a lazy take. I do not think that's even remotely a real solution. 
How about call a penalty on the best player in the world who's drawing hooks and interference? A hundred percent. That's the first thing. See, and that's the first thing that I said here. Without question, I'm not fighting that. I wanted, Edmonton should have had a number of power plays. I'm not delusional. I was watching that game. It, like 100% without question. And they should have won that game. If their power play is good. They would have scored. If they had three power plays and it crossed three overtimes, they would have scored on one. I have no questions there. I just think it's completely disingenuous to say, just call the rule book as it is. Because if you do, there's going to be penalties every shift. And the product is going to be terrible. I know. I want about, what, six power plays per game, more or less? Between, like, in total, between both teams? Three each, more or less. But I'm not saying that you ha that has to happen. I'm just saying let the flow yeah. play. I understand that there has to be some discretion at the referee's level. But if the discretion is we're not calling anything, I don't think that helps the product at all. Yeah, no. That it, Not only does it hurt the product, but it, it hurts... <laughs> It just, it hurts the overall game and the result. I mean, you're, you're cheating the result. And why I felt bad about Brooks is I don't think he did anything wrong, but honestly, you're a low end roster player and you get a penalty up three, nothing. And, and basically you're getting shifts because it's three, nothing. Let's be honest. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be on the ice if it was a, you know, a tie game. Yeah. Matthews played under 18 minutes in that game because it was over pretty early. Right. Which was awesome. And so he gets out there, and, and I don't think he does anything wrong. I think he's standing up for himself. But that's such a tough... To be a bottom end of the roster guy, to sit in the box for two minutes and watch them kill it off, and, and you're barely playing as it is, and, and you're you're generally speaking... like all, Cards on the table, you're a healthy scratch. I mean, that sucks. So I, I felt bad for him on that. So he might not be feeling great, even though he got into a playoff game. And I think Mitch Marner has a lot more to give. I think he's been amazing on the penalty kill, and that's that's no small feat. Especially considering how often he plays. He's PK1. He's yeah. up there against the other team's best players. And he's intercepting passes through the middle of the ice. The most valuable plays, he's breaking those up. Which is great. And the PK is absolutely significant. But you don't pay a guy $11 million to kill penalties. And, and I know that his point totals have been generally okay in the series. And someone will point to that inevitably and be like, well, he has whatever, X amount of points and X amount of games. I just... I. I know that he has another level. It's the same thing with William Nylander earlier. Sometimes these things happen where people sit and they go, you're critical of this guy. He's he's a good player. I mean, Matthew's not going hard into puck battles earlier in his career. It's, it's because we see what he could be, which is the second best player in the NHL behind McDavid. Yeah, it's because he's sick that we're saying this. I'm not saying anything about Nylander now. He's he's actually, he's playing the way he should. He's like that, This is what peak Nylander looks like when you... Watch him not do this for a few weeks. You know, you can you can get it the odd time because he's human. Marner did make a play on the power play that I wanted to bring up because it reminded me of peak Marner. The slap pass to Nealon to Matthews? Yeah, I think yeah. it was to Matthews in the slot. Frankly, it doesn't matter who it's to. That play was a staple of the power plays with Marner on the right flank, Kadri in the middle, and JVR down low. And those units, if you look at expected goals, they had the highest expected goal rate over the last 14 years, ever since we started tracking this stuff. He's been the main piece on, on some of the most successful power play units over the last decade and a half. So he clearly has the talent to make these passes that break down defenses. I just, I want to see those plays more often. And I know that we said on his off wing, on the left side of the ice, Marner's not that valuable because he's not going to one-time a puck. But on the right side of the ice... His passing for that slap pass option where he toe-dragged Weber and got himself to a much yeah. better shot location in the middle of the ice. Those are things I want to see more of because that's what we saw 
when he was quarterbacking the best power play unit in the NHL back in 2017 and 2018. So I want to see more of that. So so that toe drag helped set up that slap pass, right? Because the slap pass happened in sequence after that play. And that first shot created a nice rebound opportunity. I actually thought Hyman was going to bury it at one point. But a little bit more aggressiveness. Whereas when we're not seeing, you know, shots right in the bread basket, shots high and wide, they don't create anything. And, and it's just it's even easier for teams to sag off you but what was the other key part of that who did he hit the slap pass to well matthews you want matthews in the bumper roll it was matthews no i don't want him in the bumper roll what i don't but i what i also don't want is joe thornton in the bumper roll because he's received that puck in the middle of the ice a number of times and there was one that was just the most hilarious one ever and and he got it in this series and there was nobody within a stick length radius of him and he passed it out you could have not only could you have shot it, you could have actually stepped into the shot. You could have wound up for a slap shot because he had so much time and space. Yeah, and and you need to, and it sucks because obviously Tavares is out, and and he would be perfect there. I mean, hey, if the teams are gonna let Tavares tee off in the slot, good luck. I'm wondering if maybe a Galchenyuk there have a left-handed skilled player who has a good shot. I I think he would be. He was honestly the guy I was thinking. Unless you're actually gonna do the thing and, and load up Nylander there. Felino, I could see having success there. He's had success around that area in Columbus in the past. Yeah, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of better options. Jason Spezza. I mean, holy cow. There's a number of guys that have bombs on this team. I, you can tap into them. They have tried Nylander on the top unit a couple times, so that's a wrinkle I have liked because he's one of your best players in this series and trying to find a way to get him more minutes is crucial. First three games of the series, Nylander was under 17 minutes. I, would, I didn't pay too much attention to the time on ice in game four, again, because the score was pretty out of hand halfway through the game, so that has a big impact on things. But getting Nylander more ice time and more opportunities to create offensively I think is going to be very crucial, especially in the absence of Tavares. Nylander is one of your most important players. You need to make sure he's getting more than 16 and a half minutes a night. The one, the one thing I'll say, too, about... The one thing I'll say that is an actual net positive of, of Joe Thornton on the power play is there have been a few times where he's... Um, he's gone to the net a little bit more, right? And provided almost a double screener, Yep. which I think has value. He's he's good at retrieving pucks below the goal line. Very good at that. Right? If there's a rebound or a loose puck, he's good at getting the puck back and maintaining possession. So it's, all, it's not all negative. I kind of like Thornton as a net front guy. I hate him as a bumper, but as the net front, he's weirdly a good passer, kind of a nice outlet option. If you rim it around the boards behind the net, that's his office. Yeah, there's so there's positives there, and and if we go back to the sorry the original original point I was making here of guys feeling good, you know Matthew should feel good. I mean he's basically creating offense whenever he wants, even if he only has the one goal that was essentially a tap into the empty net. Scoring chances are through the roof. Yep. All right, Nylander is obviously flying. Kerfoot's flying. I we had mentioned Marner, who I think has more to give. That that was where I was going with that. Especially on the power play, that's the biggest yeah. area you want to see improvement. Hyman is obviously not 100%, so the biggest positive I'll say for him so far is that he obviously has time to figure it out and, you know, not only figure it out, but get healthy and figure it out, which is two big positives. But, you know, Mikheyev has been good. Engvall has been good. Spezza has been good. Wayne Simmons on that checking line I really like. Wayne Simmons has been legit. And I thought they were going to have to take him out of the lineup towards the end of the season. And after game one, I was thinking, oh my God, this veteran line got hemmed in. This can't keep 
being a thing. But you put Simmons with Mikheyev Engvall, what's fascinating is that his results with them have always been really positive this year. I, I was always skeptical. I'm like, why is Simmons on a checking line? That doesn't seem like his role. But I think when you get two guys who can help you get the puck back and then you're cycling the offensive zone, I, I, was, I was trying to write about this. The way that they go about creating offense is very different from your typical NHL line. They cycle super wide in the offensive zone. Shots are coming from really long distance. So you're thinking, oh, that's not the greatest shot. But Simmons loves to hang up high. If he's not at the net, he loves to hang like almost at the blue line and just rip those like 180 shots on net. Get a hard shot from about 40 feet away and then there's a screen in front and they're so good at getting the rebound. You have puck hounds and Simmons is going to hit somebody McKayev and Engvall are going to get their long sticks in there to poke it free and that's why they have positive results at five and five they've been dominant on the cycle so this is a this is a hard thing to quantify and at times even discuss but I think it's it's at minimum it's near and dear to my heart first of all I love that that Keefe is starting Simmons for for the first shift of the game I love it. And it's funny because that's something that the inner nerd in me thought was so stupid. But this is where I think I need to start to understand that that element, that aspect of things in a playoff series does matter, especially when a team like Montreal is trying to goon it up a little bit with Ben Sherratt. I was so annoyed at all the commentary on Twitter about it. It's just like, you can't just, it's the dumbest thing of all time is to sit there and just say, oh, well, he's the better player. So you just put him on the ice more. I like, that's not how hockey works. It's the most fluid, fast-paced. It's the hardest sport to coach in by far. I mean, just the overall pace of what's happening. I mean, if you're behind the bench, you're sweating. Like, it's, like, it's the three hours of you yelling out line changes and figuring out matchups and, and understanding there's what's happening. There's a lot happening. that's out of and, your control. Yeah, like, it's just wild. I mean, NBA is, uh, sure, there's some pace to it, but it's actually quite structured. NFL, you call every single play. You have a lot more control over everything. Soccer, your hands are in your pocket. Baseball, you just have a number of times. You have the computer in the dugout. Yeah, <laughs> right? You're chilling. The manager's, you know, the GM up top is telling you what to do, and you just sit there and you, you know, take the credit or the blame. Oh, we're pulling our starter who has a no-hitter through five innings. Cool. Yeah, like there is, there is a, as always, there's an emotional aspect to it. And I, you know... Over the years, the amount of times the Leafs came out just absolutely flat to start a playoff game has been just beyond belief for me. And, you know, games where, and I'm sure fans, you guys have felt it too, where you're hyped. You're hyped for the playoff game. You're hyped for the situation, whatever the case is. And you just watch these guys come out and they get speed bagged for the first few shifts. And you're like, there's nothing. There's no, there's nothing in it right now. And I think there there was absolutely like you saw him on one, on the start of uh, game three and and he was just giving it to Paul Byron. This is Wayne Simmons. There is something yep. to it, yeah. Giving it to Paul Byron off the opening faceoff, and there is something to that. There is a little something to mental edge, and we're not going to be messed with first shift, and we're actually going to go out and instead of being the hunted for once, we're actually going to be the hunters. Like there is some mindset and some gamesmanship involved in, in it and you know him going back and and calling out essentially the entire Habs team while Zach Bogosian just stood there waited for someone to get out of the box so he could yell at him too <laughs> yeah like when's the last time you've seen this from Leaf teams like they just sat there and essentially like ate shit for years I mean the amount of guys that should have went over and just absolutely ran Brad Marchand for the act the antics that he was throwing up against the Leaf playoff series after playoff series is I mean the list is as long as my arm. The list is as long as Pierre Engvall's arms. Yeah, as long as his neck. And you know, just I'm sitting there and you think Simmons would let him get away with that? 
what I will say is that it's nice to have this from a player who's getting positive results at 5-on-5 five five, because I'm always hesitant when people bring up this element for a guy who's a below-replacement-level player, a guy who just can't keep up at the NHL level. Yeah, you can't be awful. And that's what I was worried Simmons was going to be. And for stretches, it did look like that during the regular season where he was turning the puck over every time it hit his stick. But I think he's starting to find his spot on that checking line. I don't know if playing him alongside Spets is the best use of his talents just because I'm not sure if he can keep up with some of the high-skill plays Spets is able to pull off. But if you play him with a few more, quote-unquote, I guess, low-skill, low-hockey IQ players who kind of keep the game simple and focus on getting the puck into the offense zone, pucks in deep, pucks at the net win the offensive rebounds and just keep the cycle going. I think that fits his play style a bit better and he's getting more positive results with. Yeah. And I like that he's, it's important to give guys roles and, and I've, I've had this kind of theory for a little bit. Like we know that the Leafs wanted to retain Kyle Clifford. Like that's a fact they, they did try to re-sign him. And he's a guy who always had, again, positive five on five results was in the offensive zone more than the defensive zone. And by all indications, Clifford just didn't want to return. And to me, a big part of that, and you know, I haven't had a conversation with Kyle Clifford, so I could be way off base, but I don't know. I don't think the Toronto guy actively wanted to, you know, the guy, Ontario boy flat out just actively did not want to play for Toronto, but he was barely playing in the playoffs. Like he had games where he was playing like four minutes. And this, this was a guy that was taking regular shifts on a Stanley Cup winner, right? Like, like he's not a bum, like he can play. So I guess you're saying it's important for those guys to feel engaged if they yeah. want to make an impact in a series. How can you make an impact if you're only playing four or five minutes a night? Yeah, they need skin in the game too. You can't just sit there. And and that bothered me in that series because there was a point where Keith said, you know, we need more from our the rest of our lineup. And I was like, what do you mean we need more? You need to play them more and, and make them feel involved and like they matter. If people feel like they don't matter, it's like, like any profession in the entire world. If people don't feel like they matter, they're not going to produce for you. Hey, Frederick Gauthier and Patrick Marlowe felt like they mattered in that game seven where Matthews barely played. <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to get into to <laughs> that. But the, and I should note on that, Matthews played bad in that game seven. I mean, people don't talk about that. But... I, I know, I'm sorry. That was just easy to bring up. That was an easy shot to fire there. But guys need to feel like like they're invested. And, and guys, like Simmons feels like he matters, right? It's like, here's a specific thing we want you to do. We want you to go out there and and set a physical tone we want you to set the tone for our team we don't we don't want to get pushed around we are not going to get pushed around right Spezza feels like he has a role even as much as we derail Joe Thornton on the power play and with good reason I think I think there's some skin in the game there of saying like you're important to us like you're we're going to play you on the power play right every single guy has a role He's important to the guys in that room, and I know I make fun of people when they say that, but I think his impact on guys like Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner, if you scratch Joe Thornton, it's its a tough decision. It's a tough one. We talked about this with Bruce Boudreaux. Like, when do you pull the plug? How much does he need to be hurting you on ice for you to be hurting your team off ice? If everyone's healthy, what's your lineup? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, Hyman, Matthews, Marner, it's the murder line. Uh, then you have... Well, what are we doing with Tavares here? Uh, let's say Tavares is healthy. If Tavares is healthy, he's in that second-line center spot, obviously. But let's say he's not healthy for fun. I'm going to assume Felino's healthy. I think I put Felino on a checking third line, and I keep Galchenyuk, Kerfoot, Nylander together as the skilled second line. Okay, and then and then third line is Mikheyev, Engvall, Felino. Oh, but, man, I like Simmons there, and I'm not dropping Felino down to the fourth line. Felino's better than Simmons. Let's Let's not be silly. What if I? What if we went Felino, Kerfoot, Nylander, Galchenyuk, Spezza, Thornton? They did try that line at times. I think that there's some merit to it. 
Galchenyuk, Spezza had some chemistry. They were able to pull off high-skilled plays together. Yeah. I mean, Spezza and Thornton are the two funniest guys because, honestly, you could tell, like, their minds and their skill level is still so sick. They just, they, they can't, they don't have the skating to keep up for it, like, at a high level. Spezza does when he picks up speed on the entry on the power play. But when they get the puck in the offensive zone, I mean, that that's the shift. If you're the other team, that's your shift. Like, it's just 40 seconds of them just speed bagging you. Spezza has been way more productive than Fortin at five on five this year. Yeah. But I just it's mean close. the little plays they make and the way they move the puck to each other and, and find each other. It, it just, I mean, that goal that they scored against the Habs, that was, that was a legit goal. And I thought that was more Spezza than Thornton, but it was, of course. But you know, Thornton knows where to go. Spezza knows where he's going to be. I mean, they just—it's just—it's two previous high-end players that they don't necessarily have the skating that they once did, but they can still—they can still play the game. It's just, you know, it's just not at at the pace that they once did. But it, I find it hilarious. So that is an interesting line uh, that that you mentioned with Galchenyuk. I think it could work. Can I bring up one more point before we get out of here? This is something I sure. meant to bring up earlier and I never got a chance. Uh, and then after this, you can go to the driving range and launch your golf balls 250 <laughs> yards, nowhere near where you're actually aiming it. Definitely won't be straight. But the the kind of analytics point that I wanted to bring up here is that Toronto's been absolutely dominating the second period. And I know goals are 8-1. to one. I'm, I'm not huge on using goal metrics because, again, shooting percentage, save percentage, so volatile in small samples. But even if you look at shots and scoring chances, Toronto's been dominating play in the second period. And this is something Keith's brought up. He says in the first period and the third period of a playoff game, it's kind of hard to get things going. You're often going up against a five-man unit that's set defensively. Like you mentioned earlier, this isn't the regular season where teams aren't really back-checking. Teams are well-structured, well-positioned. In the first period of a tight-checking playoff game, really hard to create any open space, really hard to create any kind of dynamic offense. But in the second period, that's where you can catch teams on the long change. There's a bit more open ice available. And one, one of the big things Toronto's been doing, I know they brought this up in the broadcast, is that they've kept Montreal's players out there for minute 45-plus shifts, and those are killers. That's where you take dumb penalties. That's where you can get a line change as the offensive team. And I know that's how Jason Spezza scored a goal in one of the games. We've seen high danger scoring chances off of those plays where you have fresh legs coming over the boards and skating into dangerous areas of the ice. That's an area where Toronto's really dominated Montreal. I don't know if that's entirely based on their superior play on the cycle, both defensively and offensively. I don't know if it's by creating a bit more space off the rush where guys like Kerfoot and Nylander are able to use their speed. I just know that it's a fact, and I find it fascinating. They're they're doing what teams used to do to, you know, the old Cliff Fletcher, Lee Stempniak Leafs. Like, that's what used to happen to them. They just Okay, take me back, because I, I try to forget those years. The, like those teams weren't good and they essentially just got you know cycled to death they basically played every team's backup goalie night after night which was hilarious and you know they weren't good enough to break out of their zone consistently until of all things to be honest until of all things ron wilson got hired and he actually did a pretty good job before uh he just started getting like super negative and what i'm not gonna get into ron wilson so i talked about the depth and and guys you know having skin in the game and, and feeling invested and to me, that's the biggest thing of what feels different this year compared to years previous, where it's not just, you know, they wouldn't have survived the, and I don't, I don't even really want to call it lack of Matthews production, but he hasn't been lights out. They wouldn't have survived it. If I told you that Austin Matthews had one goal and Kerfoot was tied for the team lead in scoring, what would you say? If four games in, if, 
you know, a week and a half ago, you were like, Matthews has one goal after four games and Tavares has missed essentially the entire series. How do you think the Leafs are doing? And Kerfoot's been their best offensive player, not named Nylander. Yeah, and I would have I would have said they're down 3-1 or something, right? Right, like that. that's the truth. So that's the biggest optimism that I have. And I'm, I'm dying at some of the Habs takes coming out, right? Like, you know, Jake Evans injured, Jonathan Drouin, Gallagher's not healthy. And oh, yeah, Jake Evans. That's why you're not winning right now. Like, the Leafs are missing Felino and Tavares. Like, those guys aren't bums, right? Like, those are top of the top of the lineup players, and the Leafs are missing those guys too, and they're not, you know, that's just... The Habs were, you know, I said this before the series, and I, I think it, it just remains true. I mean... In a, in a normal season, the Habs weren't making the playoffs the way they were trending. They they were 18th in points percentage. You look at their Ducharme numbers, they're not great. They're what, like break-even expected goals, and they're really bad at, yeah, actually scoring goals and preventing them. Yeah. So, you know, that's the, like that's not a playoff team with the, with the crap that they were doing going into this series. and How about the crap that they did in Game 4, running a five, forward, uh, five right-handed shots on the power play? What the hell is that? I, you can't convince me that it, the Claude Julian Habs would have been more. We said it before the series started, right? We're like, if Claude Julian was here. I think it would be a little bit more. He would grind the Leafs down. He would actually have a a, a plan of sorts that that makes sense. I just I don't really get it. Um, but honestly, that's that's neither here nor there. But one thing I want to wrap up on because somebody asked me this yesterday after after I ripped out the game in ten, and and you've been doing a great job with the analysis, and I've been trying to get these things out as fast as I can on my end. When, yeah, I'm the opposite. I try to take as long as humanly possible and put like crazy amount of like stupid, <laughs> dumb stuff. I'm like, oh, hey, did you see this one minor little thing? And then I'll break it down in like three paragraphs. I'm definitely <laughs> lacking in the stupid, dumb stuff. But yes, other than that, but but someone asked. They said, do you even enjoy the game? Like, you, like you have to like sit there and and write about it. And so so one I'm just say yes of course I love the game I mean that doesn't feel like work to me in any by any stretch of the imagination and I'm sure that that you would say the same but but one thing I wanted to ask you and then I guess give my little bit on is is how do you go about like watching the game and and taking notes and I I think people are a little bit interested in that and and that that process yeah no honestly it's a good question because I've, I've tried to talk to people who I respect in this industry, whether it's a Justin Bourne, because I love the way he breaks down footage, or Rachel Dory is a good friend of mine, and she's worked for NHL teams in the past. I'm, I'm just going, okay, when you're watching a game, how do you do it? And it's funny, because I think some of the magic of hockey from when I was a kid, and I just, I love certain little moments. I think I still miss some of that. I, I think that because I'm focusing so hard on whether the F3 is of staying above his man in the offensive zone, or... I'm, I'm paying attention to little plays. Maybe I'm missing some of the more emotional aspects of the game. I know my dad used to make fun of me because I, I did one at home. Uh, this is a couple of years back, and I was pausing and rewinding. I, I rewatched the same rush sequence a couple times because I'd missed it in real time. I wanted to see where everyone was. And he was saying, Ian, you're totally missing the flow of the game here. You're not understanding. Like, you know, there's an emotional moment here, and you're just you're not capturing that. And I think... To a certain extent, sometimes I do miss some of that because I'm so focused on whether it's the tactics, whether it's the line matching, whether it's a particular player who just entered the lineup and I'm just going to zero in on them for a shift or two and kind of ignore some of the other aspects. So 
I don't think anyone's going to be able to fully pay attention to all 10 skaters on the ice every single shift for 60 minutes. Hockey's a chaotic sport. There's a lot going on, but I guess the way that I try to go about my work is I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's happening on the ice? Why is it happening? And in order to do that, I need to rewind a bunch of times. And uh, if, if you've ever watched a game with me, it sucks. It's not fun. I was on uh, vacation with a buddy in Montreal for a weekend, and there was a Leafs game on the Saturday night. And I told him, like, you're going to want to go into the other room. Like, he, he, he brought a case of beer over. He was really excited. I go, no, trust me. This, this isn't what you think it's going to be. I'm going to be clipping random rush defense from Morgan Riley. It's not going to be fun. <laughs> that I can, I can totally see that. I can totally appreciate that. There's Honestly, there's very – the one thing I've been blessed with in this life is a fairly photographic memory, and Alec will attest to it, where if a play happens, I'm, I'm like – instantly know who was and uh, the situation and and the line change that happened before it and and i don't know why just that so it's very rare that i actually have to like sit back and and rewind but i'm also not clipping video i'm just like i'm like okay this happened yeah i think it's because i I know my limitations i know that i'm gonna miss stuff so i need to go back and double check because half the time i'm wrong yeah and my my thing is is i'm trying to capture the the feel of the game too right that the most, the single most annoying thing that has happened in the past few years to hockey writing, and and it kills me because I remember I remember blog wars like circa 2012. Uh, shout out to the OGs. Well, that's well before my time. Yeah. I created my Twitter account in 2016. So when that kind of stuff was coming out originally, right, like Corsi and, and whatever, the the big talk back then, other than the validity of it, was the sample size required to take it seriously. And I remember there was a lot of talk by a lot of people who are now actually working for NHL teams. And it was... Gabriel Desjardins was one of the ones starting that. Eric Tulski, 2013. Yep. And these guys would never pull up a single game Corsi and be like... Or, or almost never, I'll say. Not 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 never, yeah. but almost never. It takes like 20 games for it to normalize. Yeah. It's a single game. Like it means absolutely nothing almost. Unless it's unless it's an outlier. But like honestly, if the, if the shot attempts were like 14-12 or 12-14... And now people pull up like a chart and they're like, this guy's dipping below water. I'm like, who gives a shit? It's what? Like, that could have been, you know, a line change. Could... You're the weak side winger on a play. Like, you, you you might be totally not involved from any of that. Yeah, that's such a load of crap. Like, it, you, you need to give it like 10, 20 games to actually have an, an indication of what's going on. That's why I use scoring chances instead of expected goals. Because I've found in, in years past expected goals in a single game, you could get a rebound. And your expected goals will be insanely high. And then other guys who generated a bunch of pretty good chances, but none of them were ever to that level of the rebound, it'll say that they had the worst game. And I've found that from doing this for years now, I go, well, no, the guy who had four scoring chances did better than the guy who had one scoring chance off of a lucky rebound. Yeah, and, and I, sometimes I'm just annoyed because in the back of my mind, I'll be writing something and I'm just thinking, you know, someone's going to sit there and they're going to be like, well, this guy's course, he was actually this. So this point is completely invalid. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a single game sample, but really I'm just trying to watch and kind of get a feel for, you know, what what's happening with the matchups and and what how is the game evolving? Because there's always a plan and then that plan goes to shit. No matter who you are, every single game, right? You come out That's life, baby. Right? And and so, you know, you're the Habs, the way they're approaching the first few periods, it's like, yeah, we're gonna try to put the Dano line against Matthews as much as we can. And then this third period and, and you're going, okay, well, we're down three, nothing. So that doesn't matter. Right. So like, how is the game evolving on that, that sort of feel and, 
and you know like the obviously the game score and the situation and who's handling their matchups well and who's who's essentially busting the plan right like right now to me nylander is busting the plan like the habs are doing a, a reasonable ish job kerfoot another good example right they're doing a reasonable ish job against matthews but it doesn't matter because nylander is just getting like he's eating like this guy's eating dinner right and and so now if like if i'm the habs i'm going into this next game like how do we like like this can't just happen like i can't like am i just gonna keep looking at my guys and being like well we have the plan for matthews but it doesn't really matter because nylander's just eating us alive so i'm trying to figure out like how those things are evolving like who the coaches are leaning on who are they closing periods with who are they starting periods with to set the tone how did that penalty change the flow of the game? That's why I don't like the just call the rule book crap. Because honestly, if you're getting a period with four or five penalties and they're like chintzy. I don't think that's what people want. I think it's more the idea that when zero penalties are called, that's not doing your job. Yeah, but in the same way that that they're saying things are swinging too far one way, when they say things like that, it's swinging too far. You're worried it's going to swing like, uh, I want 20 power plays in a game. No, no one wants that. Yeah, and then sometimes you sit there and you're just like, you know, the third period last night, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm trying to write about it. And I'm thinking to myself, like, like, there's nothing to say. I mean, the Habs had no push. The Leafs essentially, like... You know, they didn't they didn't just like turtle the way they did the previous game. So I wanted to make sure that didn't like in my eyes I wanted to see like, okay, are they actually gonna turtle again? But after that didn't happen, they essentially played out the period. They weren't over aggressive or anything, they just kinda played it out. And the Habs kinda mailed it in. You're like, what else is there to say? Like there's no trend or anything. It's just it kinda happens. So that you know, and then throughout the game, like I just I have a few people that I'll I'll heat check my you know, my thoughts on. It could be my dad, it could be you know, I'm sure I, like I'm no different than a lot of people. Like I watched a ton of Leaf games with my dad. Like we, you know, like it's part of the reason I like I've, I like putting that tweet out after the game. I've been doing it for years. The you know, the A and the B. And for so long, it was most impressive player, least impressive player. I've been trying to shake it up because I'm just trying to, you know, rework my brain here. And I'm, now I'm trying to ask different questions, one that interests me the most. And I value people's opinions. I don't always agree with what everyone puts and sometimes there's a mass opinion that I see in the replies that I actually disagree with but I think it's good to keep an eye on other people's opinions and this is why even though I don't tweet as much I'm sure you've noticed this over the last year or so yeah. I'm not tweeting to the degree that I used to in the past I'm still lurking on hockey Twitter I like seeing what the day-to-day -day conversations are like just because I think the public discourse especially from some of the smarter people that you can follow I, I think that has a lot of value in terms of applying some of those concepts to how I go about evaluating the game of hockey yeah, and otherwise, like, I have, like, a few friends that are really not on Twitter. Shout out to my buddy Ben, who I'm sure is listening to this. And if not, you didn't get the shout out. And, you know, send them a message. It's like, what do you think of this player? Like, who, you know, who should have been covering who? Or, you know, I'll give my thoughts, and then he'll give his thoughts. And Yeah, I'll text Bourne or Rachel after a goal, and I'll be like, what do you see here? And then they'll send me something. They think it's this player's fault. And it's funny, because I'll strongly disagree. I'll be like, really? I see this. I think this guy screwed up. And then it, it leads to that interesting discourse. Yeah, and sometimes I'll just have those where I'm like, this is what happened, and I will not take any other, you know, like, insight on it. Like, I don't care what you tell me. Like, this is what happened. But, you know, other times I'm like, yeah, shit. I, uh, I should maybe... Uh, sit on that one for a little bit so you know Since all that's you asked happening this introspective question here uh, that was such a good question by the way because it just started to make me think i'm like okay wait how do i go about doing this what's the biggest mistake that you find that you tend to make throughout the course of what watching a hockey game and trying to arrive at the right conclusion afterwards hmm that's that's a good question 
I think when I want something to happen, I, I'm thinking back to the Babcock era. They, were, they put together a five foot nine line together at one point. And I was all for it because I, I wanted all speed, all skill on all four lines. You know, the Dubis mantra, back what he did in the Sioux, this is what I want. And it forced me to, I think, confirmation bias. I, I was looking for plays that were consistent with what I wanted to happen instead of just actually evaluating the play. And I found that this can happen sometimes in my analysis with whether it's a Travis Dermott, whether it's a William Nylander, a guy who I think is good and I want to succeed. I'll notice only their positive plays, and sometimes I'll neglect the negative plays that they make. And I, I'm trying to be more objective in how I go about this. So whenever I'm, I'm watching play now, I have to keep that in the back of my mind. Now, Dom is also, Dom Lucision, he said, Ian, sometimes you have to be careful because if you try to go too far the other way and consciously kind of redirect yourself the other way, sometimes you'll go too far in that direction. So how do you find that right balance? That's kind of been the trickiest component for me because I know that human beings we have cognitive biases, confirmation bias. It's just a part of how our brains work. We tend to remember information that's consistent with our prior beliefs and neglect information that's inconsistent with it. But trying to find that right balance, I think has been the hardest part of doing this for me over the last few years. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I, I, I know at times I'll definitely have that thought where I'm like, I know this guy played like shit today, but if I say it, yeah, with me and Dermot, it's like, oh, it was a brutal game. And I'm like, but I don't want him to come out of the lineup. Well, you know? well, to be honest, I'm not even sitting there thinking that. I'm sitting there thinking, I know this guy sucked. And if I if I articulate why he did, I'm going to get just absolutely roasted. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter that he sucked. Or if I, th- or if I think Nylander floated on a back check and yeah. I mention it, then I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm fueling the fire for baghead Twitter and I don't want to do that. Like I mentioned, I mentioned it one on the the dry sidle goal that he scored against um, the Leafs earlier in the season, and you know Nylander tried to go for a stick lift, and it was a bad play. Like it was objectively, it was a bad play. Like you got to put your body on an elite player, and he didn't, and he got roasted, and the Leafs scored, and it was like it gets screenshotted and put on Twitter, and you know a lot of heroes go on it, and it's just like that. Like in my heart, that was a hundred percent the wrong play. Like you can't you can't play it like that. Like that's just but sometimes you're writing and you're like, honestly, do I want do I just do I want to hear it? Do I want to see it in the comments? Like, do I want to see a hundred people be like this guy's an absolute moron? And honestly, the answer is no. Sometimes it's just no. So you're kind of worried about having an opinion that's different from the, I guess, what most people would agree with. Like you're it's... worried about kind of being that contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. <sighs> It's not even like worried. It's just like sometimes you're just like, who who needs that? Like who, you know, like who wants to get criticized to that nth degree like all the time? Like you just like you don't like we're all human. And real talk. That's part of the reason I don't tweet as much anymore. I know that reading the comments in the Leafs report cards on The Athletic after every single game in 2018 and 2019, it took a toll on me because none of it was positive feedback. It was all, you're an idiot, and here's why. And sometimes I tried to take the emotion away from that, and I go, okay, let's let's ignore what they're saying about me personally, and let's evaluate the hockey opinion, because there might be something here. But over time, I just found that it was beating me up mentally. Yeah, and I I, I had a low opinion of myself, and it was affecting my work, and I want to be able to do my job well, so... everyone has to do what's best for them for me i just decided to not tweet as much and try to pay closer attention to the the discourse online from a distance i don't know if that's doing the right thing i was i've put this in one of my report cards i don't know if i'm using the internet the right way frankly i don't know what the right way is to use this uh this www dot uh, world we live in but 
and then sometimes I sit and I just think like, what's the point of what I'm like, is this, is this worthy of, of discussion? It's like, like, I don't think Marner's had a great series. I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit here, but I'm like, is it worth me like pointing it out? Like they're winning. He's, you know, he hasn't been a net negative. He's contributing in some capacity. Is he contributing to the extent that you would hope a player making almost $11 million is? No, but he is contributing. So it's like, is this worth it? And that's the thing, that $11 million thing, that's the comment centric. That's the one that's going to get Twitter fired up. And And then I sit, it's like last night, it's like Jack Campbell got a shutout, right? Like, yeah, you got a shutout. That's awesome. Like it's the playoffs, whatever. Like, did he make one unbelievable save on the route to that shutout? I don't think so. Like, yeah, I think that's about as easy a shutout as you could possibly get in the playoffs. And I'm like, but is this, you know, and then someone asked in the comments after like, what, like no love to Jack Campbell for the shutout. I'm like, well, what's there to... Like, I don't know. Do you think he played amazing? I think he was fine. I think he was good enough. Like, I thought it was more a testament to how well the team played as a whole. Yeah. That the team the team got the shutout that game. Yeah, I'm like, I tried to shut out the defense. I tried to do all these things. So then sometimes you kind of sit and you're like, well, what's... Like, is this worth it? Is it worth pointing it out? Is it worth having this conversation? Is it worth having this debate after? Is it like, how are things going to flesh out? Like, I'm writing words that I could say in 15 seconds. So... You know, but they're like conversations that you might need literally hours to dissect. So what this is making me think of is that I think a lot of my analysis, at least in the last year or two, has been very post game centric. I'm evaluating the specific game I just saw, whereas my work when I first started doing this in 2016, 17, 18, whatever, I was always looking at the larger trends, trying to use data to, you know, make a, a decision based on objective data over large samples, because that's what we do in the research world. And am I losing some of that by focusing so much on a small sample? Am I starting to not pay attention to the larger trends? But then again, at the same time, we do need to make decisions based on, you know, some of the more recent information. We need to update our priors and sometimes... And new information comes to light that could change your opinion. So at the same time, are you going to be overreacting to that small sample of evidence and completely throw out the last three, four years of meaningful data? You don't want to do that. So, man, this is really making me think. This is making me look in the mirror and try to think about how I go about analyzing this sport. But what a question, just because that <laughs> it, I think this is, it makes for a really good uh I think more people could do this themselves when you, not just me, not just you, but Hey, anyone who watches this game of hockey, how do you do it? What do you think your shortcomings are? What do you think your strengths are? Uh, It it leads to an interesting kind of self-evaluation of how you go about this. Yeah. And the last, the last thing I'll say is I find it like particularly, and I'll, I'll end it on this note is like, sometimes you're critical or whatever. And it's like, you hate this player. You hate this GM. You hate this coach. You hate this team whatever the thing is. I, I criticize Dubas. It's, oh, you must hate Dubas. I'm like, dude, if you've read my work for the last however many years, you know that I strongly believe in his underlying philosophy. Like, I have so much respect for him, but it's my job to evaluate things and to criticize certain things, so I've got to do it sometimes. Yeah, and like, regardless of what you think about like whatever like somebody is that they write and if, you know they're following a team and, and they're, they're working at it and they're doing it like steady, like, guys, like, I just want to see the team win. Like, if I, you know... <laughs> Like, that's it. Like, that's it. If I, I either think what they're doing is trending towards the way of winning, or I think it's not trending. So when I say, yeah, like, I personally don't think it makes sense to have your fourth line play four minutes and have no skin in the game. Like, I just, I, me, I, I can't see teams winning championships that way. Like, I think you need guys invested throughout your lineup. And when that stuff's not happening, personally, I'm going to be critical of it. Now, if they, in fact, win with guys playing four minutes a night, I'll be the first one to be like, yeah, I was wrong. 
and that's awesome. They won. Or Alex Kerfoot, for me, it's like, hey, here's some evidence to disprove my prior opinion of this guy. Like, shit, I was wrong. Yeah, I don't care. Like, but if a guy's playing like shit or they're doing things that are terrible repeatedly, I'm going to sit there and call it out because I want to see them win probably just as much, if not more, than you guys. Like, I cannot tell you the hours. Yeah, and that's the funny thing about this this blogosphere thing. Uh, I remember talking to Myrtle about this because I always had the, the opinion that people in the quote-unquote mainstream media weren't critical enough of their own team, whereas people in the blogosphere would actually criticize some of the things that yeah. were going on. And I think some of it is just the absolute passion of they care. They want this team to win a Stanley Cup so badly that they're pissed off that the third pairing and the fourth line sucks. Yeah, so let's end it on that note. We've gone a little bit long. But it was because we were rambling here. I felt like we were at a bar just trying to reevaluate ourselves and think about <laughs> life. I actually kind of really dug this. I hope everyone else did. Yeah, I hope so too. Let us know in the comments if you didn't. <laughs> everyone else hated it. It's just me and Anthony kind of self-actualizing here over the podcast. That's okay. The Leafs are up 3-1. Go Leafs go. Let's hope that they close it out and get some time to recover. And then we'll be back with a Jets podcast. Yeah, and they're much better at attacking off the rush with Nick Ehlers and company, so I'm sure we'll be breaking down into some of the tactics of how can the Leafs neutralize some of their dynamic offensive players in space. So I'm really looking forward to that, really looking forward to the rest of the series, and good talk today, Anthony. We'll talk soon. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation. 